but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And this is a very special presentation of The Body Serve. We are doing a deep dive into the career, the life, the relevance of Zena Garrison. Lady Z, Zena Garrison, one of the great tennis names, really, packs a lot of punch. During this quarantine, we've had a lot of time to, to plan out new episodes, to do some research, to think about how we want to define ourselves as a podcast and what we want to do next. Xena is just, is somebody, you know, I've always known about, but I'm kind of embarrassed to say I knew very little about her career, only that she was seen as kind of a bridge between the great Althea Gibson and the new generation of young African-American women in the Williams sisters. And even then, it's become clear to us that she hasn't really gotten her due Mm -hmm. in that regard. Right. So... One of the the goals of this episode for me is to to stop talking about Xena as a bridge and talk about her as a great player in her own right who had an interesting and excellent career and has done some incredible things after retiring. Who's had a fully formed career in life from her origin story in tennis to how she learned the game, how she grew up in the game. And then how she continued on in the game after her retirement. Mm -hmm. We're also going to give our usual disclaimer at the start of this episode. Like we do with any of the historical episodes that that we've done in the past. We do not want to represent this as the truth. As the Xena Garrison story. It is merely our observations stemming from the research that we've done. Right. We're not historians. We do take great efforts to make sure everything we're saying is true and and presents uh, a pretty accurate retelling of the facts. But some of the reservations that I have been having about this episode in particular is not wanting to speak for Zena Garrison or Laurie McNeil or any of these pioneers in women's tennis, not wanting to speak over them and to represent their story how they see it. You mentioned a few of them just now, but this story of Zena Garrison is not just of her, but includes a handful of other people. And who are some of the, the main characters, so to speak, that we'll be talking mm-hmm. about in this episode? Right. So it's hard to tell Garrison's story without John Wilkerson, who was her mentor and coach, without Althea Gibson, who was in the locker room during Zena's 1990 Wimbledon final, Aura Washington, who in many ways is the precursor to Althea Gibson, who... I would bet many of us know very little about, but who played tennis in a time when it was impossible for black people to play tennis in the USTA events. And of course, Laurie McNeil. Right. Zena's friend, contemporary, fellow Houstonian, and whose career has a ton of similarities. They grew up together in life and in tennis, born a month apart in Houston, coached by John Wilkerson. I I mean... You cannot tell Zena's story without mentioning Laura McNeil. Right. And at the same time, you have Katrina Adams, who we know now in a different context as the recent president and CEO of the USTA. We, of course, have to talk about Steffi Graf and Navratilova 
Conchita Martinez, all of these other contemporaries who who fill out the story. Shonda Rubin, who then bridged the gap even further right. to the Williams sisters. It's interesting to me when we prepare these episodes because we recently did one on Monica Sellis, and we're talking about some of the same years here. And it's interesting to get a sense of all the other things, all the other noise that was going on while we were doing that Monica Sellis episode. All the other drama and intrigue and players coming into their own. One of the other limitations of this episode that I want to mention, we would have loved to have gotten our hands on a copy of Zena's autobiography. However, in this time of COVID-19, A, it was not readily available online in Canada, and also it was expensive and also perhaps not the wisest purchase to make having a book coming through the mail. (laughs) Right. One of the major goals for me in doing this episode is not just presenting a read-off-the-paper history of Zena's career. I'd like to think that we'll be able to present her career with empathy and understand a little bit more some of the, the troubles and trials that she'd have gone through in her career to achieve what she did. Because unfortunately, one of the narratives surrounding Xena while she was playing and that's endured is that she was an underachiever. And uh, I think it's a disservice to her and all that she's achieved and all that she went through to paint her with that one brush. And so I hope that with this episode, we'll be able to give a more complete telling of Xena Garrison as a tennis player mm. and as a, as a person. Right. And as always with these types of episodes, my goal is that in this specificity, we're able to find something that tells us a bigger story about tennis and about sport in general. So in telling someone's story with a microscope, hopefully we will lead each other to a a better understanding of the sport that we love. But that's a, a really ambitious goal. That's always like where I start with these kinds of episodes. We'll kick things off with a bit of a quick resume of Zena Garrison's career. She won 14 WTA titles from 36 finals, meaning her career WTA finals record was 14 and 22. But of those 14 titles, they spanned all surfaces. She won on carpet. Nobody really plays on carpet anymore. Mm. She won on carpet, she won on hard court, she won on grass. Most people probably think of her as a grass court specialist. And she also won a title on clay, beating Chris Evert. Yes. So she really did it all. And it's it's emblematic of a player with a wide skill set that, when situated in that specific time and place in women's tennis, was able to be successful on all surfaces. Mm-hmm. The big highlights of her career is that 1990 runner-up finish at Wimbledon, beating Sukova, Celis, and Graf before losing to Martina in the final. Of course, she won a bronze medal in singles at the Seoul Olympics in 1988, and she won a gold medal in doubles with Pam Shriver. She also beat Pam Shriver in the quarterfinals of singles at, mm. the, at that Olympic Games. She ended Chris Everett's career at the 1989 US Open in the quarterfinals. I mentioned her title on clay. It came in 1985 at Amelia Island, and... In that tournament, in the quarterfinals, she beats the number 10 seed Steffi Graf, who was very new on tour at that point. She beats the number two seeded Hanna Manlikova in the semifinals, and then beats Chrissy Everett in the finals. And so when you have a result like that so early in your career, 
beating Graft, beating Manlikova, beating Everett on clay, you can understand why Zena was looked at as somebody with immense talent and the presumptive next best after Chris and Martina retired. Mm-hmm. She was a at one point the number one in juniors. She won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in 1981. The junior events. Right. She never won a major in singles, but she made two finals in women's doubles, one with Laurie McNeil and the other with Mary Jo Fernandez, and won three Grand Slams in mixed doubles. A bit of trivia that may come in handy at some point. Zena Garrison and Laurie McNeil played the very first all-black WTA final in 1986, and that happened at the Eckerd Open in Florida. Mm-hmm. Eckerd, like the drugstore. That no longer is that, exists. Is that what it is? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Throughout her career, she reached the quarterfinals or better at a slam 15 times, getting to the semis five times, and getting to the final once at Wimbledon. Throughout, she beat Chris Evert, Navratilova, Steffi Graf, and Monica Seles, all at major events. She finished in the WTA top 25 in 14 consecutive seasons. That is a whole lot of consistency. Mm-hmm. She was set to retire after the 1995 U.S. Open, but according to Zena, she told a story at that U.S. Open that after her first round match, Billie Jean got on the phone with her and said, listen, you got to go out on your own terms here. Only do this if you want to do this. And so she carried on into 1996, and that's when she retired at the end of the 1996 season. She was having a great U.S. Open in 1995, beating the young Lindsay Davenport early in the tournament and it made sense like why not why not keep it going if you're still enjoying yourself and still playing well with so many black athletes you see these firsts right so Zena was the first african-american woman to serve on the board of the usta she was the first african-american woman to reach a grand slam final since althea gibson in the late 1950s 1958 Mm -hmm. that's a long time 32 years so where did Zena start At the time, during her career, there was a lot of writing about her origins. There were some uh, exaggerations, some fabrications, but her origin is not your typical tennis origin story. She was born in 1963 in Houston, Texas, third ward, the seventh child of her mother, and there was a 10-year gap between her and her next closest sibling. She was a surprise. This is a common theme for a lot of families at that time, right? You had that in your family as well. Right. And in my family, a lot of people were not practicing the, um, how do I say this? The rigorous scientific contraception that we have (laughs) have available today. So there were some surprises. Zena's mom's doctor told her that it was a tumor, that there was no way that at age 42, she was pregnant again. Lo and behold, she was born in November, 1963. Her siblings called her Tumor Lena. <laughs> wow, that is terrible. <laughs> but the Garrison family had a really rough go of it in the 1960s. Zena's father died of a stroke when she was only 11 months old. A few months later, her 21-year-old brother, who was a minor league baseball player, developed a tumor and died shortly after. She grew up very, very close to her mother, sleeping in her bed until she was a teenager and kind of following her siblings around. You know, when you have siblings that are so much older than you, they do a lot of the raising, a lot of the parenting. And this is where her tennis story starts, because her brother takes her to McGregor Park in Houston to be playing some other sport. And she's just sitting around on a bench, 
minding your own business, watching what's going on, and the tennis courts are right there. And John Wilkerson, who is teaching tennis at McGregor Park at that time, spots her and says, essentially, little girl, why don't you come play? And he, as he tells it, of course, you know, picking up a tennis racket for the first time at 10 years old, she's not hitting winners in the lines. But he could tell from the start that this was somebody who could be developed and had talent. Mm-hmm. Actually, there are a few different ways this has been told. Zena said he came over and said, what are you doing taking up God's air over there? <laughs> and so she starts I mean, to but that, that's an entryway. I mean, yeah. he absolutely had the goal of getting her to play, right? Oh, yeah. But the, you it's know, a way this, to disarm her. This first encounter, like this could be part of a movie, right? This would be such a great scene. He sees this little girl by herself just kind of hanging around the tennis courts and says, why don't you come over here and pick up a racket and, and play a little bit? And we know that in Zena's retirement... She's done that for thousands of kids in, in the same park where she, she learned to play. Wilkerson himself has an incredible tennis origin story. Right. He is also a Texas native from San Antonio. He played tennis at two different historically black universities, Prairie View A&M. He was there for a few years, went to the army. When he came back out, he played at TSU. He played pro a little bit, qualified for the U.S. Open when he was, I think, 26 but retired from pro tennis and set up this academy in McGregor Park. And so the early years of Zena Garrison's tennis playing, you hear this story a lot, right? With some of these natural talents like Monica Sellis, they start playing, they start playing older kids, go into junior matches, don't even know how to keep score, don't know if they're winning or losing, but they have this prodigious talent and this kind of natural free-flowing energy. And I guess as a kid, you know if you enjoy the game or not. The parallels there to Monica's story are, are very strong mm-hmm. in the not knowing how to keep the score, but just playing because you love it. And so Zena develops fairly quickly. Like you said, she won those two Slam Junior titles in 1981. She's got this relentless servant volley game. She could still rally from the baseline. We watched tons of videos where Zena was able to flatten out the one-handed backhand and pass people when needed mm-hmm. at the net. But... Her M.O. was to attack, 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 get to the net, and put her opponents away with pristine volleying. Right. And I wouldn't call it like a religious serve and volley game, right? It, it was different from Martina. Like you said, she was actually comfortable playing from the baseline if necessary. And watching her, you get a sense that her game was intuitive. It was free. There weren't these glaring hitches. But there were certainly unique elements of her stroke production that you don't really see. She was very deliberate in starting points. She took her time getting her first serve in. She also, on return, was renowned over the years for her butt wiggle. Yes, the butt wiggle. She would wiggle her butt while she was (laughs) Mm -hmm. waiting to return serve. Which a lot of people do now. Not, Not everyone is so pronounced as that, but she also combined it with sticking her left hand straight out in front of her while she was waiting to return, which is just a, a unique aspect to her game that I don't think I've ever seen before, while she was doing the butt wiggle. Of the butt wiggle, Zena is quoted in the Houston Chronicle as saying, I started doing that as a young girl when I was learning to play tennis here in Houston, but I never realized how much I wiggled it. She goes on to say, it wasn't until 1990 the year that I made the finals of Wimbledon, that it hit me. She says that she went to a dinner in Tokyo and was introduced and the whole audience got up and started shaking and wiggling. (laughs) (laughs) 
That was the first time I realized I must be wiggling it pretty good on court. <laughs> so she's a top junior in 1981, is a tour regular in 1982 into 1983. By the time 1984 comes around, that's when she starts to make real progress on the WTA tour. She won her first WTA title in Zurich. Switzerland. It was her fourth final at that point. In 1985, she'd been a pro for three years. She gets to number six in the world. Like we said earlier, she beats Chris Everett to win Amelia Island. She reaches the semifinals of Wimbledon, losing to Martina in two tight sets, and also makes the finals of the U.S. clay courts. In her hometown. Mm -hmm. Now, this is all happening in the wake of her mother's death in 1983. Her mother, Mary, whom she was extremely close to, fell very ill during the 1983 U.S. Open. She continued to play. When she lost at the U.S. Open, she came home, and it was kind of too late. Her mom died really shortly after she arrived home. And this is something that she didn't talk about for much of the 1980s, but just impacted on her psyche and career a lot. You know, she developed bulimia, which persisted through most of the 80s. She had relapses through the 90s as well depression, just uh, things that she didn't want to and didn't know how to talk about to anyone else. And so all of these great results and this this career that she's building is happening in the wake of what she's going through emotionally that a lot of people don't even know is happening. At the same time, you have this narrative that's being developed over the years in the 80s that Xena is somebody who can get to the back end of tournaments but not close. She can have one big win in the tournament, but not back it up with another. She can't close the deal. And so this this idea and narrative of her as a choker is being kind of ruthlessly developed while folks don't know the full story of what Xena's going through. Mm -hmm. She played damn near a whole decade of tennis while suffering from bulimia. Right. Imagine how that saps your energy, your health as a professional athlete at the highest level, a top 10 player for years in a row. I can't imagine how she persisted through that. To that end, Curry Kirkpatrick in Sports Illustrated wrote in 1989, Over the years, Garrison has lost so many late-round matches to elite opponents that she has allowed the doubtful and demanding collective mind of tennis to conclude that she's a hopeless choker. She has been ranked among the top dozen women for six years, but has never made the finals of a Grand Slam event. She has reached the allegedly advanced age of 26, and her career is judged by many critics to be almost beyond saving. Yeah, so if you've ever read some of these older sports stories from the 80s and 90s, you know these (laughs) writers were absolutely ruthless, did not care about your feelings, there was no political correctness. They were rude, oftentimes misogynistic. We just read one today by a prominent New York Times sports or tennis journalist at the time, Harvey Ariton, and it was not good. No, there was a lot of like, like if you can imagine that dead spin snark with less wit and more mean-spiritedness, that's what a lot of it was. Xena in the 80s. We come to 1988, the Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, which she describes as the best time in my life. We said earlier that she won bronze in singles. She wins the gold medal with Pam Shriver, And look who they beat in the final for the gold medal. Sukova and Novotna, who individually are some of the best doubles players that women's tennis has ever seen. And Novotna must have been very young at that time. Between 1988 and 1990, Zena ushered Chris Everett out of the game, 
famously beating her in the quarterfinals of the 1989 U.S. Open. She got married to Houston entrepreneur Willard Jackson, parted with her longtime coach and mentor John Wilkerson, and hired Wilkerson's associate Willard Thomas. She overcame bulimia, and by 1990, she's with a new coach, Sherwood Stewart, but is still known as this choke artist and kind of a villain. You know, the woman who who kicked America's princess out of the game. Right. And in spring of 1989, she had that run-in with Monica Zellis, which we talked about in our Monica Zellis episode. Monica's first Roland Garros. They met, and Monica was handing out flowers to the crowd. It was a totally bizarre spectacle. She turns to hand a flower to Ms. Garrison, and Ms. Garrison says, no thank you, declines, and gets booed by the crowd, and goes on to lose to this young, I think Monica was what, 16, 17 at the time, beats Chris Everett, like you said, has to sort of deal with the brunt of the entire U.S. Open crowd being against her because obviously the beloved Chris Everett was leaving the game. Those are some jam-packed years. She's got this reputation built in at this point, but at the same time, 1989 into 1990, that's when her career really takes off in earnest. Mm -hmm. That's when she makes her most finals. That's when it builds to her making her first ever Grand Slam final. She reaches her career high of number four. This was somebody even at that, what was it that Corey Kirkpatrick said about advanced age? I think she was 26 at the time. He said she has reached the allegedly advanced age of 26. Mm -hmm. Which for context, that was pretty ancient at the time. Sure, you had Chris Everett playing until she was 34. Martina Navratilova was still around. But so many of the top players came and went at a very young age in the 80s. Tracy Austin was beset by injuries. Andrea Yeager retired before she was, what, 21? All these players just simply did not. The majority of them simply did not play into their late 20s, let alone become better in their late 20s. Right. So the thought was, if you haven't done it by now at age 26, you're kind of a lost cause. And yet, she had a great season in 1989, and it kind of built toward this incredible run in Wimbledon in 1990. She beat number 10 Helena Sukova in round of 16. And Sukova is one of the small group of players who you could say is one of the greats to never win a slam, along with Zena Garrison. In the quarterfinals, she beats number three Monica Sellis in Monica's second Wimbledon. She has just won her first major at Roland Garros. This is Zena Garrison's only career victory over Monica Sellis. And I gotta say, if you have the chance, if you have the time, watch this match. This is an absolute classic. It is tennis like you don't see. I know this sounds like stodgy and old, but you really don't see this style of play at all. You can, I mean, Monica's prowess, her return game, just the the absolute power that she can unspool is on full display. But Garrison, throughout the match, adjusts uses every spin that she can manage and outsmarts Monica Sellis. One of the other things that I took away from watching this match, and this may be a bit of a side note, but related since we did an episode on Monica Sellis, Monica was given a hard time for her results on grass, and that was unwarranted. It's not like Monica was out here unable to know what to do on a grass court. Monica was playing good tennis that day, and Zena Garrison rose to the occasion. Right. And then she rose to the occasion again in the semifinals, putting to rest 
albeit briefly, that narrative that she wasn't able to string together big wins back to back. What she had just done to reach the Wimbledon final was to defeat the two best players in the game. The two clear runaway best players in the game. Monica Seles, Steffi Graf, who had just competed in the 1990 French Open final and the players that everybody kind of expected to see in that semifinal. And Zina Garrison upended that. Right. So Monica was still learning to play on grass, but she actually played a very good match. Zina lost the first set, and she actually spent a lot of the time on the baseline rallying with Monica. And at the time, you're not really, like, you're just not going to win that way. But you could see that she came in with a strategy and that she knew if she rushed the net on every point, she was going to get passed over and over and over. You know, I went into it thinking, okay, this is going to be a serve and volley game versus a baseline game. And it wasn't like that. The match didn't play out that way. Xena hit a lot of flat shots, some topspin, some slice when necessary. She really just used all angles of the court, used that overhead smash expertly, and she almost lost in the final set, right? Like Monica went up 7-6 after Xena had already been leading in the third set. She held match point, Monica Sellers. Zena saved match point with a booming down-the-line forehand. And then wins 10 of the next 12 points to win 9-7. So she meets number one, Steffi Graf, who was the two-time defending champion at Wimbledon. Steffi would go on to three-peat between 91 and 93. And Steffi stands will remind us that Steffi was dealing with this sinus infection at the time. Her father was embroiled in this tabloid scandal a Playboy playmate had accused him of fathering her child, so she was forced to answer these questions. Uh, I mean, you know, her father made things difficult for her in general. Keep in mind that in that semifinal, Steffi Graf had made 13 straight Grand Slam finals. Oh my god. That's what Zena Garrison was up against. She was up against her own demons, the narrative that folks in tennis had perpetuated against her, as well as this behemoth of a streak from Steffi Graf. For the listeners, we're coming back from a little bit of a mini break because you, A, could not believe that stat. You had to double check (laughs) it yourself. I did have to fact check it. And you also didn't trust me enough in that moment to come to recording and and put something that bombastic out there without it being true. Okay, 13 straight major finals, and it's only 1990. It is true. That's where Steffi was at at the moment. As she won nine of them, by the way. But back to this Wimbledon final. Not many people have them. They're difficult to achieve. When folks revisit Zena's career, this is often the zenith. This is mm. what people remember. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time with this event. Right. So Zena becomes the first African-American woman to reach a major final since Althea Gibson did so in 1958, winning the U.S. Open. She is wearing Martina Navratilova's signature clothing line throughout the entire tournament. This is the woman who she's about to face in the final. Zena Garrison has been a top 10 player for years. She's peaked at number four. She does not have a clothing sponsor. In the mid-80s, she was wearing some designs from an L.A. clothing store. Right. Like, her stuff was unique because she had gotten this this company, this store, to send her their stuff, essentially. Mm -hmm. She wasn't making money off of it, but she had cute kids. Right. She had an eye for fashion. She had an interest in it. She loved clothes. But here she is, a top 10 player, no sponsor, 
But throughout the Wimbledon tournament, she starts garnering all these endorsements. She signs a six-figure endorsement deal with Reebok 24 hours before the final. Immediately, I thought about Venus Williams' deal with Reebok in the 2000s, where she made something like 30 to $40 million over the course of a few years. Xena started at six figures, you know, but that was her first clothing deal. By the end of Wimbledon, reportedly, she had garnered a collection of sponsorships totaling a million dollars. Right. She got an offer from Yonex, and for the first time, this is from Sports Illustrated in 1990, for the first time in her eight-year pro career, Garrison, 27, is making money off the court. And again, it's like one of these... One of these firsts that you're almost embarrassed to say, right? First black woman to do this. First time she's making money off the court. In today's environment, that would be unheard of. It would be impossible. I don't know how much of a comfort, if at all, it is for Xena to hear that she had to walk for Venus to run with Reebok. Mm -hmm. At the time, in the lead up to that final, Xena was quoted as saying, Nine? Question mark? I can't even comprehend one Wimbledon title. That's amazing, unrealistic. That was after she had beaten Steffi Graf in the semifinal, knowing that she was about to play Martina Navratilova, who was going for her ninth Wimbledon title. And in the final, we see a very nervous Zena Garrison, uh, just, you know, a player who didn't, who wasn't able to show off her best game. Martina Navratilova is is really the, the standard bearer of grass court tennis in the women's game, or, or really in the game in general. Martina was able to win 24 of 28 of her service points. If you think about it, that's actually not that many service points. So the the thing was done very efficiently and economically. Martina was 33 years old, which was considered ancient, and she was coached by Billie Jean King. Curry Kirkpatrick, who was clearly on the tennis beat for Sports Illustrated at this time, we gave quotes from him earlier on. He comments about Zena Garrison and that final saying, that Garrison, who pulled off a semi-amazing stunt of her own by upsetting Salas and Graf to reach the finals, was finally put to rest 6-4-6-1, and then finishes a sentence with six Zs. Like sleeping. Like sleeping. Which is He also refers to her unfair. as the newly industrious Lady Z. Now, somebody should have sat Mr. Kirkpatrick down and told him how to give a compliment, because that was not it. Right. And also with the definition of the word industrious. It doesn't mean she wasn't working hard before. It's that in 1990, her hard work was paying off in a big way. I mean, there's there's some truth to it. Because Xena hadn't always had the results that matched her talent. She started to mm. have those in 1989, culminating in that 1990 Wimbledon final. So if you want to make the argument that Xena is now approaching this point in her career where she's finally having these results, yes, you're absolutely accurate in saying that. But to then be snide about it, with this newly industrious business? Like, come on. Yeah. Zena was coached at the time by Sherwood Stewart. So she had parted ways with John Wilkerson a few years ago. And she was now being coached by Sherwood Stewart, who she actually won mixed doubles titles with at the Australian Open and Wimbledon. Two of her three mixed doubles titles at majors. And he had been giving her these detailed game plans going into the matches throughout Wimbledon which was a big departure for someone like Zena, who was known for playing such a natural, intuitive kind of game on court, that she really just felt the game as she was playing it. So this was a big change. Zena was coming off the two biggest wins of her career to get to this biggest moment in her career. And what she's met with 
is this level of expectation to again accomplish this first, to be in a position to be talked about, written about as the first black player to do this. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, it would have been the first black WTA player to win a Grand Slam since Althea Gibson. In the open era. The first in the open era. And this is something that hung over her head and was a weight on her shoulders, admittedly so, throughout her career. Can you imagine coming up with the junior pedigree that she had, with the expectation of being the next best American player, to take the reins from Martina and Chrissy, and to fight through that your entire career, to then get to this position in 1990, where you have to play Martina Navratilova going for a ninth Wimbledon title, and then have Althea Gibson show up. Right. Althea Gibson, who hadn't always been that prominent on tour Mm post-retirement. So actually, Althea Gibson shows up a few times throughout Zena's career. She hit with her when she was a little girl, shortly after John Wilkerson took her on. She helped train Zena at this time in 1990. She was kind of in the camp, and she was there in the Wimbledon locker room telling her, I have champagne for you when this match is over, so you just go out there and you do it. And Zena said, like, that that made her even more nervous. Like, she wasn't nervous enough playing the great Martina Navratilova in the Wimbledon final. There is Althea Gibson cheering her on in the locker room. While the result wasn't what she would have hoped, she was able to win the mixed doubles at that 1990 Wimbledon with Rick Leach. Yes, who is the brother of John Leach, Lindsay Davenport's husband. Tennis is a very small world. Part of doing this research was looking into Zena Garrison's head-to-head against some of the top players of her time. Unfortunately for her in the, in the telling of this story, it's not favorable. There's some lopsided head-to-head matchups. She played Martina Navratilova 34 times, and the head-to-head was 33-1 to 1 in favor of Martina. The lone win for Zena came at the 1988 US Open quarterfinals. She was 1-4 against Monica Seles, 2-12 against Steffi Graf, 3-10 against Sabatini, 2-9 against Chris Evert, 3-6 against Sukova, 4-9 versus Mandlikova, 2-11 versus Arancha, 3-4 versus Merujo, 0-5 against Capriati, and 1-6 against Conchita. And so when you look at these head-to-head results, you can start to understand why this narrative around Xena developed. Because collectively, she lost a lot of matches that many folks, including herself, probably believed that she could have won. Because mm-hmm. she certainly didn't lack the talent. No. You do not beat Monica Seles and Steffi Graf back-to-back in 1990 without having oodles of talent. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the one person who Zena was able to, to maintain an, a fairly even record against was Pam Shriver. She was 8-8 eight and eight against Pam Shriver, and they played some great matches. And doing the research, you find quite a few spots where their stories are linked. Mm-hmm. Be it the 1988 Olympic Games, and then there's a bit of an anecdote that we'll give at the end of the episode where a little sum-sum happens. <laughs> we mentioned earlier that it's, it's hard to tell Zena Garrison's story without talking about the, the lineage, the great tradition of African-American players in women's tennis, because for many years, for most of the century, that was a very, very small group. I mentioned the great Aura Washington, whom I knew very little about before we started researching this episode. 
And we do actually want to do a future episode about some lesser-known figures in tennis, so I won't give it all away, but Aura Washington, really known as one of the great female athletes of the early 20th century, she won seven straight national titles in the ATA, which was the American Tennis Association. The USTA was segregated at the time until 1948. She wasn't allowed to play in the USTA. Helen Wills Moody, who was the undisputed champion in women's tennis, refused to play Aura Washington several times, so they never played. And Washington moved to basketball, put together an incredible career in basketball, is now part of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, but she's somebody who had far fewer opportunities than Althea Gibson. Althea Gibson is seen as the mother of, of black women in tennis, and in many ways, Aura Washington achieved all these amazing things before she wasn't even allowed to play at Wimbledon. It wasn't a possibility, so we have no idea how good she was. We get to Althea Gibson, who breaks the color barrier, who wins four singles Grand Slams. Into the 70s and 80s, there are people like Leslie Allen, who achieved a ranking of number 17. She's the first black woman since Althea to win what we call a significant title. She won Detroit. She was elected later to the WTA Board of Directors. And then we get into the generation of Zena, Lori McNeil, Katrina Adams, and then after that, Shonda Rubin and, and thankfully, the floodgates start to open. We mentioned earlier that you cannot tell the story of Zena Garrison without speaking about Laura McNeil. Who was Laura McNeil? Literally, Zena's contemporary in every sense of the word. Right. Grew up with her. They met, I think, when they were 13. Trained together with John Wilkerson in Houston. Came on tour at roughly the same time. They achieved a lot of those firsts at the same time. The, the biggest one that they achieved together was being the first African-American woman to play in the final of a WT event. We mentioned that at the 1986 Eckerd Open. Mm-hmm. Lori actually leads their head-to-head 7-5. to five. Lori won that 1986 Eckerd Open final in three sets, 2-6, 7-5, Doing a bit of a comparison between the two players, Zena's career high was number four. Lori's was number nine. Zena won 11 WTA titles. Lori won 10. Zena made the quarterfinals are better at 15 slams. Laura did that four times. And they met in three straight Birmingham finals, with Laura McNeil winning two of them in the, the early to mid-90s. So their careers were remarkably similar. Zena had the consistency. She made way more late rounds in majors. Not only that, but was consistently making quarterfinals and semifinals on the regular tour. Mm-hmm. Lori McNeil is probably most famous for beating Steffi Graf on two very big occasions, both in the first round. The first was in the 1992 WTA Championships, and the big one was 1994 Wimbledon Round 1. Steffi had three-peated between 91 and 93, and McNeil knocks her out in Round 1 and reaches the semifinals. This tournament is so fascinating, continues to be so fascinating to me. I've mentioned on the show before that the first tennis match I ever watched was a 1994 Wimbledon final, of course, where Conchita Martinez beats Martina Navratilova. Having done this research, what I now learn is that Zena Garrison had made the quarterfinals of this event. Laurie McNeil, after beating Steffi Graf in the first round, advances to the semifinals. They were on opposite ends of the draw. We could have had 
realistically, Zena Garrison versus Lord McNeil in the final of this much storied Grand Slam right, event. Right. It's a it's a it's an event that keeps on telling stories. Yeah, because at the same time, Jennifer Capriati and Monica Seles are out of the game. Lindsay Davenport is coming up as this possible next great American champion. You have 37-year-old Martina Navratilova going for her record-extending 10th title. And at the time, at least during the tournament, it didn't seem like people were really talking about Conchita. No. <laughs> right? As a potential champ. Like she, I mean, she upended everything when she won. There's this article that we read in the New York Times where Zena Garrison and Lauren McNeil, as they head into week two, they're being heralded as saving women's tennis. It was such, such a bizarre right. take and an angle to go at. But these veterans are finally having this moment together, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't far-fetched that this could have happened. Zena eventually goes out to Gigi Fernandez in the quarterfinals, Gigi's biggest singles result. You'll know her as one of the great doubles players of all time. Mm-hmm. And then Laurie McNeil comes so close to beating the eventual champion, loses deep in a third set in the semifinals, I believe 10-8, to Conchita Martinez. So these two played doubles together on and off throughout their career. Actually, in the late 80s, because Lori was with IMG, she was forced to split with Zena Garrison and play with Betsy Nagelson, who was a close friend of Monica Seles. Like, this is such a small world, right? Like, I keep hearing these same names over and over again. If you'll recall from the Monica Seles episode, Betsy Nagelson was the friend and confidant that helped Monica through some of her darkest moments. Mm Mm-hmm while she was struggling to get back on tour after the stabbing. Right. So in the late 1980s, when Xena was going through some some dark times, Xena parted ways with John Wilkerson. She kind of distanced herself from Laurie McNeil at the time because of the doubles issue, the partnership issue. She does go back to playing with Laurie in the 90s. Yeah. We also get the sense that it was strategic, in a sense. Because think about it. If you have... These two players, and John Wilkerson talks about this when he was coaching both of them. It's not necessarily the best setup mentally to have both of them playing the same tournaments all the time. So one of the Mm. challenges for the two of them embarking on the tour together and something that they eventually got to was a kind of a separate piece. Where they kind of had to carve their own careers out separately and come back together when they they could and wanted to. Mm. And Wilkerson said that he hoped to create these two champions who would consistently meet in finals, right? Like, this is the original Richard Williams here, but these girls were not sisters. They were close friends, but it's, like, it's a little different. It's tough. He envisioned this this kind of duopoly where he would be able to sit back and not care who won because both of his girls were making finals. But what's clear here is that both these women put in work. In the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I don't think that they get enough credit for. Right. And so some of the things that we really cannot speak to from from our subject position is what was it like to be a black woman on the tour in the WTA in in the 80s and 90s? We can only go by Xena and Lori's own words. Garrison kind of consistently downplayed or, or tried to avoid that topic. For me, I I try to think of that in the context of the 1980s in general. Like, this was not uh, a period where political activism was particularly 
fashionable or acceptable from great athletes. You know, you had Michael Jordan, who was the really the icon of corporate branding as far as athletes go, apolitical, didn't want to alienate anyone. And we're in this Reagan period where, you know, racial activism is not welcomed. It's considered a distraction from this morning in America period. And so I do, I have to wonder what it was like to be someone like Zena Garrison having to navigate breaking all these barriers and not wanting to have that define you as a person, to, to want to have your own personality as well. And some evidence toward that is what we hear Zena saying while she's playing in the 80s and what she says after she's done playing. In the 80s, she's quoted as saying, I'm sure there were race issues, it was part of everyday life, but he, being John Wilkerson, told me to concentrate on tennis and let him do the worrying. She also says in 1985, in the Chicago Tribune, Being black in a sport that is predominantly white, I had a big problem dealing with people who wanted me to do things I didn't want to do. I have a lot of respect for my mother and my coach because they told me to be the person I want to be, to just be Xena. If you try to be someone that someone else wants you to be, it doesn't work. And then in 2001 in the New York Times, this is when Xena is a member of the USDA board. She says, for me, tennis was the best thing in my life and the worst thing. I was consistently analyzing everything around me, people and motives, but I never really got to totally enjoy it. Being African-American at that, there was always so much expected. I was always very aware of that to the point that I think it took away from my personality. So we have these dueling feelings here where in the moment, Zena is trying to represent herself as Zena, as taught to her by her mother and John Wilkerson, and then having retired in 2001, ruining the fact that maybe because of these external factors, she wasn't able to do it as much as she would have liked to. In doing this research, you come across certain recurring themes and things that you can extrapolate into other areas of tennis. The, the seamless one here, and the one that fits most, is comparing experiences between Zena and Bagstenchen Lori and the Williams sisters in the way that they're written about. And there's this overtone, heavy-handed, poverty porn almost element to the way that Zena was written about and the way her origin story was told at the start of her career well into the into the 80s. Yeah, yeah. So remember that this is Reagan's America in the 1980s. This is the America of the crack epidemic, stereotypes of welfare queens, all these racist ways to talk about ghettos and the way that black Americans lived in urban environments. These were acceptable They were not considered offensive to much of America. Think of how New York City is depicted in those times as well. Right. So you have so many of these stories being framed as rags to riches, as this just destitute poverty that she purportedly grew up in. This quote from Sports Illustrated from Joy Duckett Kane says, quote, McGregor Park in Houston's Third Ward has been the scene of riots, shootings, robberies, and drug dealing. And then they get in to talk about Xena. Yeah. I mean, it's it's literally every single time. Right. This right. is the lead. This is how her story is set up. She could be just making the final of some little old event, but it's Xena Garrison from crack-ridden, bullet-ridden Houston is doing these things. Like, there's such a lack of imagination in telling this woman's story and Venus and Serena's story when they come on the scene. Because folks, and these are white folks, they don't know how to do it. Right. I mean, even Bud Collins says, quote, she does a lot of work with black kids in ghettos, 
giving clinics and so forth. This okay. was on air. This was like a very blunt return. That was in 1986, right? So she was already known for giving mm-hmm. back to her community a lot. That's the community that she came from. This was on air as well. Bud right. Collins said that. Right. At many turns, Zena did try to push back at that and say, I did not grow up poor. They certainly weren't wealthy, but she said, quote, We lived in a decent neighborhood, and I never went to school without lunch money. We always had food. I was spoiled. I had everything I wanted. How can I say we were poor? And I wonder, you know, her mother had already passed at that point, and I wonder if she felt that she would be disrespecting her mother by by exaggerating their poverty, right? By by going with that narrative, would she feel that she was betraying her mom who worked very hard to put food on the table? It just it's simply like it wasn't fair to say, "Oh, they grew up in the ghetto, destitute, scraping by" when that wasn't the case for Zena. Keep in mind this is on the eve of the 1985 US Open that she pushes back against this narrative. She's still very, very young. She's not even 20 years old yet at this point. And she has the wherewithal and the gumption to say to these folks, now listen, this is not my story here. Right. Y'all need to stop. Obviously, journalists use tropes and conventions to tell stories in ways that they feel readers will understand, that, that will strike a chord. There are millions of ways to tell a story and there are a few things that limit the way that we tell stories. They're, they're conventions of the genre, of the occupation of journalists, really kind of the unwritten rules that journalists are supposed to write stories in because they are expected to resonate a certain way with audiences or uphold a level of objectivity. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Like right. It's a tale as old as time. So there's, But the problem is the tale is often always told about black people. Right. So there's tropes of journalism. And then there's also the limits and the biases that individual reporters carry with them. And many times those are uninterrogated. They're, they're unconscious. And this is why we say that representation is important in journalism, but it's not everything. So if you have more black journalists, more journalists from different socioeconomic strata, the stories may start to, to read differently. However, that's not the only thing, because you also have these traditions and strictures of the form itself mm-hmm. that, that restrict it. There's also this, this thing that happens time and again, where the decisions that black tennis players make for themselves are questioned as to whether or not it's the right thing to do. That Zena Garrison deciding to move to a black-owned agency in 1985 as opposed to courting like white America is that the right thing to do Richard Williams keeping his girls off the junior circuit is that the right thing to do Taylor Townsend not playing the European clay swing in favor of playing ITF events stateside is that the right thing to do right there's a and then there's a lot of stories about Zena Garrison takes control of her life and you saw it in 1985, in 1988, 89. Like, so what, you wonder, reading these all together, like, what, well, when did she truly take control of her life? When did she throw off those people who were restricting or oppressing her? Like, obviously, at that time, you weren't going to read these stories as an anthology, as a compendium. We did not have the internet to, to organize them in a very easy search box like we do now. But you see, like, the same sort of conventions repeating themselves. 
I don't know if general audiences found it more easily digestible or if those were just the conventions and traditions of the the genre. Also wrapped up in that is you're moving away from blackness and that makes you by default more palatable to white audiences. You are no longer the ghetto girl enmeshed in this blackness that we cannot sell. You are making yourself better. You are becoming part of this white establishment and we can now understand and celebrate you better. I don't know. It's really interesting because, of course, the echoes of that story are seen in Serena and Venus Williams, who lived in Compton, California. You hear the stories about you know, bullets ringing out at the tennis courts that they played at, the tennis, the public tennis courts they played at, the father bringing balls in a shopping cart. Like, these are these are very rich stories because there is a lot of truth to those stories. Mm-hmm. But there's also a, a little bit of, like, the, the white, wealthy tennis establishment peering into this world that they either didn't know existed or never really took enough care to find out existed. It's very paternalistic as well. Right. And so it's interesting because, like, Zena's story, aside from her race, her story is not super uncommon, right? It's not like your archetypal tennis story, but many of the great champions of the 20th century were working class. Billie Jean King. Right. Did not come from wealthy upbringings. Navratilova, Monica Seles, Pancho Gonzalez... Jimmy Connors, Maria like, Sharapova, right? Like many of the all-time greats, were not these country club kids, right? So it's interesting to me how how the story changes when that person is a Black American. One of the other things that jumped out to to us while doing this reading was getting a better idea of what life was like on tour for these young Black girls and women. We're often told about the early days of the Williams sisters that they were standoffish, that they kept to themselves, that they didn't have friends. And we see traces of this with Zena and Laura McNeil in the 80s as well. Yeah, yeah. And this is where somebody like John Wilkerson is concretized as a precursor to Richard Williams. They're kind of drawn with the same pencil, in a sense, because they both had very specific ideas about how they wanted their young charges to embark on the WTA tour. John Wilkerson says that he kind of advised them to kind of like stick to themselves, you know, like look out for Mm -hmm. each other. How many times have we heard that about Venus and Serena that they, when they started, they kept to themselves and that they looked out for each other. And Zena herself was seen as very shy and introverted. And she said in the, in 1985, when you're that young, you're afraid to approach people and say things that you might want to say. If you're with someone you know, it's a lot easier to be yourself. I just didn't know too many people. When you look around and you're one of maybe two or three black girls in the locker room or the players' lounge, like how does that affect how you socialize with all the other girls on tour and how those, those women view you? A question to the listeners here. How many times have you been around other tennis-watching folks who may not be as into the sport as you are, and they could not, for the life of them, tell Serena and Venus apart. This happened with Laura McNeil and Zena Garrison. Time and time again, I came across stories where folks just could not tell them apart, and they were completely different-looking people. 
Zena was five foot four. Lori McNeil was much taller. They had different skin complexions. It was not a difficult proposition. But when some folks want to know why are you being standoffish and not integrating yourself as we think you should into this tennis establishment as young black tennis players, I want to know, well, maybe can you start by being able to tell us apart? (laughs) Right. Because it happened time and again with Zena and Lori, and then it happened time and again to this day with Venus and Serena. Which one is that again? Right. John Wilkerson tells this story where after Zena had had quite a bit of success, he's on those courts in McGregor Park, and Zena is out practicing. He's watching as she's practicing, and somebody approaches him and says, oh, wow, I would have thought you'd have been out here practicing with Zena, not Lori. When, in fact, it's Zena who's on the court. You know, the brazenness of not being able to tell black people apart is still mind-blasting to me to this day. And so throughout Zena's career, she wasn't really somebody who talked about racial slights or racism on tour. Like, she, she did sort of shy away from that subject a lot. And you see her sort of gaining more confidence and gaining more of a voice, I think, in her retirement. But Wilkerson did say, you know, he'd feel the stares while they were on the tour. He experienced slights. He said, quote, there's so many ways for them to make it difficult for you. Scheduling, contracts, you name it. The USTA's attitude toward blacks has always been just blend in, as if that really happens with no one getting hurt. These are young, fragile girls you're dealing with. If they can't feel good about themselves, they can't perform. I always felt it was my job to protect Zena and Lori from that. That was from the New York Times in 1997. And so in 1997, the Williams sisters are coming up. They had been exposed to national media throughout the decade because they were known as these great prodigies with this incredibly unique story. John Wilkerson's comments reminded you of Richard Williams' approach in a lot of interviews with Venus and uh, maybe typically an older male white journalist, which was the situation a lot of the time. And there's one very kind of infamous example of this where we see a young Venus. She couldn't be more than how old? I think she was 14 at the time. He's asking her all these questions as to what she's going to be doing. And then he follows up by saying, why are you so confident? And he presses her again. And then Richard cuts the interview short. And he says, listen, I'm not going to stand here and and watch you talk to her that way. You're not going to cut down this black girl's confidence just for sport, essentially. And so you see, like, through the difference between the 80s and the 2000s and the 2010s, like, how how prominent and how vocal black women in tennis become, largely because of what Zena Garrison and Laurie McNeil did, what Venus and Serena did, and really like the general political environment at this time. This is a very, it's a very different world we live in now. At, in the early 90s, Richard Williams was seen as a kook. He was seen as dramatic for cutting off that interview with Venus. And now people are starting to understand what he really meant. I think we can move to Zena's post-career at this point. And I want to start with her relationship with Serena Williams. Because when Serena came on tour, Zena was an official mentor to her via a WTA program that existed at the time. And now, Zena says, I always tell her that she's mentoring me now. She's broken so many barriers. But I've known her since she was like seven or eight years old. After Serena's 1999 US Open win, 
Garrison was interviewed. She was in the box for that match. And she recounted one of her first meetings of the Williams sisters. A lot of you might remember this picture with the Williams sisters with Nancy Reagan. Zena recalls this event saying, Everybody kept saying, you've got to see the girls. She could barely see over the net, and she was poaching. She was a cocky little thing. I understand that. The baby. I'm the baby of the family. I knew one day she'd be a champion. This is great for women's tennis. Women's tennis is off the map. They didn't come from a country club situation. They went against the grain, and they worked very hard. And then something else that Zena said that I want to point out here. After the 2018 U.S. Open, Zena was, to my mind, the only person to hit on this business of Serena being particularly affronted by Carlos Ramos's accusation because she felt it was an assault on her character mm-hmm. and how that is a particularly sharp knife to use against a black person. Yeah, I think the the only one from within tennis that I can recall saying something like that. We'll finish up this episode with talking about Zena's post-career activism. Well, in fact, her activism that started during her career and has extended and expanded into her post-career. And then a few interesting tidbits at the end. So Zena founded the Zena Garrison Academy in 1992 with John Wilkerson using her prize money from the Family Circle Cup in McGregor Park in Houston, where she learned to play the game. And what this has grown into is just, it's incredible. It's a story that I feel we haven't heard enough about in the tennis press. Zena's post-retirement career has been so fascinating. She has taught anywhere from 25,000 to 45,000 kids to play tennis in Houston for free. Right? Like, the point of this academy was... The academy has, not necessarily her. She's taken a more hands-off administrative role in her later years. And she has tennis pros and John Wilkerson on the ground doing the the actual teaching. Mm -hmm. John Wilkerson is still alive, till very recently had an active role in the academy. And the, the point from the beginning was this academy was going to provide a supplement to public education to enhance kids' education about nutrition, wellness, gardening, um, what they were learning in school, and also teach them to play tennis at the same time. It was free of charge. If you couldn't pay, you would be admitted. And this is all funded by private donation and now corporate sponsorship. While some may have been tempted to write about it in the past as Xena keeping these kids off the bullet-ridden streets... In fact, it was after-school education in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It was opening up the game of tennis to a lot of kids who wouldn't normally have that opportunity, like herself. Her career, in a lot of ways, happened by happenstance. She just happened to be on that bench, that park bench, while her brother was playing sports and was approached by John Wilkerson. And so she's giving this same opportunity to thousands of kids like she had. Her home base was in Maryland for a long time, but in the 2010s, she moved back to Houston, had a much more active role in the academy, was there more frequently, and this academy has become an institution in the city. Yolanda Adams, the gospel singer who is a Houston native, is on the board of the ZGA, the Zena Garrison Academy. During Hurricane Harvey, you may have heard, I think it was during 
the U.S. Open. 2017. Right? In 2017, that Zena Garrison lost her house. She lost a lot in this horrible natural disaster. And the Academy stepped up big time, did a ton of relief efforts during Hurricane Harvey in Houston. And, uh, you know, I think her her tennis compatriots stepped up in a big way as well at that time, Venus Williams in particular. She tells the story about how when this happened to her in 2017, that Venus was one of the first calls that she got. And she said, I've already given money, what more can I do? And one of the stories about Xena that isn't told or known as well as it should be is just how enmeshed, in a good way, she is in the tennis establishment. Folks like Zena Garrison. Right. They respect her. They see the work that she's done. And they're willing to help and contribute and keep this academy going. Even people she had falling outs with previously, Pam Shriver in particular. <laughs> I remember Chrissy Everett and Pam Shriver talking to Zena on air at the 2017 U.S. Open about this. So we'll hear about a Pam Shriver story in a few moments. The one salacious moment of the episode, probably entirely overblown, but it's something that happened. Also in her retirement, Zena was the U.S. Fed Cup team captain between 2004 and 2008, replacing Billie Jean King. Uh, In 2008, her contract was not renewed. Mary Jo Fernandez was hired instead. And in early 2009, Zena filed suit in a federal court claiming racial discrimination. Patrick McEnroe, the Davis Cup equivalent of her Fed Cup captaincy, was used as an example of her unfair treatment, his salary, the fact that he was kept on and she wasn't. This suit was eventually settled out of court. If you recall at that time, the USTA had gone through a litany of accusations about unfair treatment along racial lines. Yeah, this was not a great period for the USTA or Patrick McEnroe. A few years after, it was reported that Patrick McEnroe told Taylor Townsend that she was out of shape, kicked her out of the player development program because she needed to take control of her fitness and weight, basically. So uh, it was kind of a disaster few years for USTA PR. Then they hired Katrina Adams as the president and CEO, which hopefully was reparative for the organization. I wonder how much Zena's role for those couple of years that in the early 2000s of being on the USTA board gave her some kind of added insight into how that organization is run that would lead her to this decision. While she was on the USTA board, she also did work as a queer ally. She participated in this video with former athletes across a host of sports akin to the You Can Play project, essentially letting young queer athletes know that there is a space for you in sport, which really was a landmark endeavor in sport at the time because it was not something that was really being done. Interestingly, in 2012, Laurie McNeil joined the Zena Garrison Academy and she worked with the Academy for a few years. She's no longer involved explicitly on staff, but there is this synergy and this this relationship between Zena and Lori and John Wilkerson that no matter what the ups and downs are over the years cannot be broken. Like they are forever linked together. And they ended up right where they started again in 2012. 
A few other little tidbits that we found when we were researching is that Xena credits Bill Cosby for her sparking her passion for tennis. He came to McGregor Park in Houston when she was a little kid, and he invited her to come on the court and play with him. And she thought, I mean, at the time, can you imagine? Like, this is the 1970s. Bill Cosby is one of the biggest comedians in the United States. He invites her on the court to play with him. And soon after, she's training with Althea Gibson. So, like, she's off and running. This other bit, which we kind of teased as being salacious, between Zena Garrison and Pam Shriver. I'd mentioned earlier in the episode that, to my mind, her most equitable rival, I think, during the 80s was Pam Shriver, based on head-to-head alone, mm. being 8-8. Eight and eight. They played in, in Edgbaston, in Birmingham, in 1993, and the title of the piece is Shriver and Garrison Get in Encourt Spat. Quote, An encourt flirt between Pam Shriver and Zena Garrison Jackson yesterday overshadowed their quarterfinal match at the Edgbaston Tournament in Birmingham, England, which Garrison Jackson won 4-6-6-3-6-2. During the match, played on an indoor court because rain made the grass courts unplayable, Shriver fired the ball at Garrison Jackson and swore at her opponent's fans. She acted like a bitch, Garrison Jackson said. I couldn't believe that she didn't get a warning. Garrison said that she was sure Shriver was, quote, a good person at heart. But I heard some of the things she was saying about me, like calling me stupid. I would never say things like that about her. The 29-year-old from Houston said she considered some of Shriver's actions and comments to be racist. Quote, there are a lot of things about me, but I don't have a racist bone in my body. That hurts a little bit. She goes on to say, anyone who plays long enough has these matches. And she acknowledged that she would apologize to Garrison Jackson. Quote, on the court, you get stretched physically and mentally and things happen. That's competition. In another article, this bit from the New York Times did not mention this, but in another article in The Independent, it's written that, quote, Shriver appearing crestfallen and apologetic 10 minutes later answered the allegations. There are a lot of things about me, but I don't have a racist problem. My coach is black. That hurts a little bit, but Zena said it in the heat of the moment, and that's just a way of striking back. So, I mean, you see tinges of the same thing in both articles. The quote may not be verbatim in either one. But what I found interesting here was Pam going to this idea of my coach is black as an example of her absolutely not being racist. Where have we seen <laughs> yes. this before? The other bit of context that makes this interaction noteworthy and interesting is that at the time, Schreiber was the president of the Women's Tennis Association and Garrison Jackson was on the board of directors. Zena said, I'm seriously thinking about resigning. She's supposed to be our leader and it's going to be a major conflict for me from now on. Schreiber allegedly said that would be a great loss. But we know that they're friends. Like, they were able to put this behind them. But, you know, things get heated on tour all the time. Like, she acted like a bitch? That's what Zena <laughs> Can you imagine? Most players are so much more restrained these days. Like, that would never slip out. Was this a 1993 version of, if it's not one scam, it's another? <laughs> I guess. Or that, like, Maria Serena spat over the Rolling Stone article. Um, but Pam Shriver was an attendee at the 20th anniversary uh, celebration of the Zena Garrison Academy. They seem to have patched things up quite well, but this is, I mean, this is wild. In 2017, when Zena lost her home, she had to pack up, she told the story that she had to pack up just a handful of things to take with her to evacuate 
chief among them were her Olympic medals from 1988, that she won gold alongside Pam Shriver, keep that in mind. And when she returned to the house, everything was flooded and she was able to find this one trophy. And she said that she immediately sent a picture of it to Pam Shriver and Billie Jean. Mm. So, I mean, this is years under the bridge at this point. But as far as anything salacious that happened during her career, this was the, the most notable one that we found. Yeah, there's not much. That brings us to the end of this episode. What are some things that you learned in preparing for this episode? I knew nothing about John Wilkerson. And the fact that I I could glean so many parallels between John Wilkerson and Richard Williams was so enlightening as far as this continuum in tennis. From Ora Washington to Althea Gibson to Zena to Laurie to Venus to Serena, right? Like a lot of these Black American players having to make their own way to being criticized for doing things their own way. I feel like learning about Zena was learning about so many other people and the interconnectedness of their stories. I also learned that the the recollection of Zena that I may have had in my head, what I thought I knew of her wasn't the full picture at all. That this idea of her as a choker, as an underachiever, was not fully formed. Yes, she was most definitely an underachiever based on her prodigious talent, based on what she showed us she was able to achieve on court, based on the players that she was able to beat. But there was a lot more to her story than just the results on court. Anything you want to add? I know that one of the things that you came into this project with was an appreciation of her activism. Like, you were on board with that from the jump. Like, that's something Mm -hmm. that you knew about her, and I imagine was something you found interesting learning more about. Yeah. I guess at the end of this, I just wish that we knew more about Zena Garrison. I wish she was a more central presence in the presentation of American tennis on TV. I would love to hear her voice and commentary. It just feels that, you know, when the Hurricane Harvey thing happened, it felt that she was so much outside of that inner circle of American tennis that, you know, that this was something that could happen to Zena, but it would never happen to Chrissy or Pam or Mary Jo, right? Like This was it, something that could happen to Althea at the end of her life, but could never happen to Billie Jean yeah, it, or Chrissy. I don't know. It just felt like, like, why is this great player with this incredible story who has given just like an inestimable contribution to her city? Why Why do I know so little about her? And why do American tennis fans not hear her all the time? You will find a lot of press reports about Zena Garrison, but it almost but almost all of it comes from the Houston Chronicle. Yeah. She's written about a right. lot in the last 20 years since she retired, but it's exclusively local. Mm. Why is nobody else interested in the work that she does and the career that she had? Because Zena Garrison is an important part of tennis history thanks for being on board with our latest deep dive in the history of tennis throughout the year we will probably have an opportunity to do many more of these because tennis is not happening at the moment thanks for listening my name is jonathan you can find me on twitter at tennis underscore john and i'm james at elliot jmr we are at the body serve on both twitter and instagram till next time thank you thank you very much Thank you.